Uh, today we're happy to have Dr. Stephen Wright, who is a national expert on benzodiazepines. Dr. Wright uh, attended medical school at Case Western Reserve and is board certified in family medicine and addiction medicine. We also have Terry Schreiber uh, participating also. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Wright. Well, good morning. Uh, hi, my name is Steve and I'm a recovering benzodiazepine overprescriber. Now, if we were in a 12-step meeting, we'd be kind of going forward with that, but it's really true. I grew up in family medicine, residency graduate in 1982, started doing addiction medicine about 33, 34 years ago, uh, and then medical pain management about uh, 17, 18 years ago as well. And along the way, of course, benzodiazepines come along uh, as they are uh, have a role within uh, use in uh, family medicine, addiction medicine, and uh, sometimes within medical pain management. Uh, so I can advance, there we go. Uh, some disclosures, uh, my primary work at this particular time involves benzodiazepines. I have worked with the commercial entity uh, uh, Biodelivery Sciences Incorporated with uh, Belbuca. Uh, Terry has no uh, uh, disclosures. So it's true though, uh, we wake up in the morning, we start with a stimulant, maybe at the end of the day, uh, use something to help us sleep. And we as prescribers uh, sprinkle into individual lives, many medications. And, and sometimes these lives really seem to be surrounded by and built up by medications. And we end up with a situation where we don't know if fractured lives are necessarily related to the original medical conditions that we're trying to treat or sometimes from the treatment that uh, we provide to these particular patients. So we're going to look at that with regards to benzodiazepines here. Uh, look at the neuropharmacology, the risks, benefits, alternatives, uh, looking particularly at uh, discontinuation and its management of benzodiazepines and then provide some best practice recommendations for benzodiazepines. Terry is going to speak to her lived experience in relation to that. Uh, she is also a researcher in the area of opioids and benzodiazepines and brings that uh, uh, particular skills to us as well. Very typically, the whole circumstance starts out with anxiety. Love this uh, painting by uh, Edvard Munch, uh, which really depicts the amount of distress and difficulty that patients do present to us, and we need to and should respond to that. What happens with benzodiazepines when we provide that is that uh, benzodiazepines are located uh, in terms of their effect on the GABA-A receptor in the central nervous system predominantly. This is a receptor that's quite relevant with regards to mood, physiology, and pathophysiology as well. GABA itself is the major inhibitor of the central nervous system. It decreases excitability, uh, generally speaking as well. Benzodiazepines is what's called a positive allosteric modulator, which means that it sits on the receptor, shapeshifts that uh, receptor, so it increases the efficiency of GABA. In other words, GABA works better as an inhibitor 
when benzodiazepines are on board. This all involves uh, chloride ion conductance, uh, which can involve a variety of functions, including sedation, uh, anxiolysis, uh, which can be important in certain circumstances. Uh, the receptor itself has uh, six different uh, alpha subunits, four beta subunits, three gamma subunits, and it's very, very complex. But this is what it looks like on the receptor. GABA works at what's called the orthosteric uh, site, and then the benzodiazepines and related compounds at a different site to, to, to change the shape of the receptor in such a way that GABA actually works better. But benzodiazepines not only work centrally, they work peripherally. We have identified a, a, a protein called the translocator protein, TSPO, found in 1977, isolated and cloned in 1992. It is a peripheral receptor. It is everywhere. It is found on the mitochondria, on the outer membrane. Uh, there is some central expression of this in micro, microglia. You can see from the PET scan that indeed it is everywhere. And this is important because it might be explanatory for the strange symptoms that can occur uh, with benzodiazepines and particularly upon discontinuation. So benzodiazepines were originally identified by Leo Sternbach in 1957. He found that uh, in a rodent model that chlorodiazepoxide or Librium uh, expressed anxiolysis uh, in 1960. Uh, right away, it was uh, marketed uh, uh, for use in the United States and we've had it since then, so now six decades. Just one year later, Leo Hollister uh, described chlorodiazepoxide withdrawal, including, uh, including severe withdrawal uh, consequences uh, like seizures for these patients. 1963, diazepam came to the market, and from 1968 to 1981, diazepam was the best-selling drug in the Western market of any medication, not just the benzodiazepine class. So problems were identified and benzodiazepines were found to be associated with uh, addiction, uh, at least to some degree. In 1975, it was placed on Schedule 4 where, you know, where the class remains. 1979, uh, Ted Kennedy uh, had uh, hearings in the United States uh, Congress uh, where a lot of the concerns that we have even today about benzodiazepines were expressed. Nothing occurred as a result of that. However, 1983, Malcolm Later of the United Kingdom described the risk benefits and indications uh, in a, uh, uh, a review, and indeed those, uh, uh, that description largely remains today. We do recognize, of course, that uh, benzodiazepines had indeed uh, improved safety profile compared to barbiturates and meprobamate, uh, meprobamate not uh, in, uh, available anymore, but it was an advance, uh, certainly at that particular time. And then in 1991, the Beers List was first published, and uh, on the Beers List, uh, which reflects uh, uh, medications of concern for the elderly, benzodiazepines were really highlighted, and indeed that remains true today. Probably the most important advance was that of Heather Ashton, who as a result of her research, and we'll walk through a little bit of that here, uh, published uh, the benzodiazepines, how they work and how to withdraw, which has now been known as the Ashton Manual. There was a revision in uh, 2002, 
and in 2011 a supplement. She passed away just last year, right at this time, as a matter of fact, uh, September 15th, a, a year ago. So we have now uh, approved benzodiazepines in the United States. There are 14 of them. Different countries uh, have different approved benzodiazepines, but 14 in the United States. But not only that, the Z drugs, uh, which are uh, called uh, Z drugs or Z hypnotics because they have the letter Z within them, Zolpidem, Zalaplon, Zoplicone, uh, those are available for uh, sleep uh, as well and have had some efficacy. They are preferred over benzodiazepines generally for insomnia. Uh, on the average, increasing sleep time by an average of 12 minutes, uh, uh, but they have, of course, serious adverse reactions associated with them, uh, daytime sedation, uh, amnestic events like sleepwalking, sleep uh, uh, driving, sleep sex, uh, uh, can you imagine? Uh, but indeed, uh, important reactions that occur for some individuals. It remains, however, that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is first line, and indeed, in one study, 80% retain benefit after completion of cognitive behavioral therapy six months after the therapy actually concludes. There actually is another study that I've identified that the, the benefit lasts up to 18 months, and so that certainly is favorable. So the class of medications that include Z drugs as well as benzodiazepines, uh, also the barbiturates, are benzodiazepine receptor agonists. These are the allosteric modulators of a large class of different uh, substances that do this activity, increasing the GABA uh, effect, the inhibitory effect as well. And within that group, interestingly enough, are also neurosteroids, propofol, and alcohol has some effect there as well. In pain management, uh, we see a lot of benzodiazepine use. At least a fifth, maybe up to a third of individuals who are on opioids are also on benzodiazepine uh, uh, category of medications. But associated with that uh, uh, is increased fatality when co-prescribed with opioids. In, uh, in 1999, about 13% of individuals who had an opioid-related fatality uh, also had benzodiazepines involved. Uh, in, in 2011, a study there, 31%, and then in some locations, actually 50 to 80% of opioid-related overdose deaths involve benzodiazepines. So an important factor uh, in all of this and uh, frequently prescribed, so of great concern. Does it work for, uh, do they work for pain? Uh, well, in spine pain, reviews pain, uh, are mostly unfavorable. They're ineffective for radiculopathy and studies, I remember, uh, you know, be, in training, being told that uh, we could use diazepam associated with an opioid for an acute back circumstance. That apparently has not played out, uh, even though a lot of us are still prescribing in that context. There is uh, some evidence in uh, animal models that there is benefit, uh, but evidence is insufficient. Uh, with, the, with the exception of two uh, pain circumstances, which is stiff person syndrome and burning mouse syndrome, uh, both of those have favorable uh, effects with benzodiazepines, uh, certain benzodiazepines, not all of them. I'm not going to uh, talk more about that, but they, they do have first-line indications there. Here we see the graph of the benzodiazepines uh, within uh, 
uh, overdose uh, circumstances, and uh, indeed it has risen. Uh, uh, and we're going to probably see more of that uh, in relation to COVID, of course, because of the anxiety uh, that has been associated uh, with uh, COVID-related events. So what about the use of it? Uh, pre prevalence of uh, prescribing in the United States, uh, depending on the study, 6 to 13% of individuals. This is actually reflected by a 40% increase since 1996. Uh, and then, of course, the associated overdose deaths has increased as well. It turns out that's uh, up about 400%. Canada and Europe, a similar range of uh, prescribing uh, in those countries. And there are a number of factors associated with uh, prescribing, uh, of course, anxiety, insomnia, pain, uh, chronic medica uh, medical conditions uh, not otherwise specified, being female, white, in retirement, low income, elderly, smoking, poor health, uh, more than one prescriber. And interestingly enough, when we make uh, computer prescribing easier, uh, uh, that prescribing increased uh, as well. What about non-medical uh, use? Uh, so I reflected that, uh, you know, it's uh, category uh, four under the scheduling of by the uh, uh, DEA. Uh, so non-medical use actually does occur about uh, 0.7 to 2.3 percent, much higher in uh, high school seniors and college, uh, of course, but non-medical use is not addiction. Uh, within the group of individuals using uh, uh, benzodiazepines non-medically, about 8 to 10 percent may be addicted. But that's even brought into question because of the studies uh, really not uh, necessarily applying the criteria appropriately, probably is an overstatement of the frequency of uh, non-medical use as well as addiction. Different benzodiazepines have differing uh, addiction liability, uh, Xanax in particular, diazepam as well. But most of the time, uh, individuals that are using benzodiazepines non-medically are using them to augment the euphoria of other substances or offset experiences uh, that involve withdrawal as well. So this is critically important though. The vast majority of individuals with benzodiazepine-related problems are related to physiologic dependence and not addiction. Uh, and that's really key uh, when we take care of our patients because going down the treatment pathway that we commonly use for addiction will not work uh, for these individuals. So what about looking at benzodiazepines in general? The overall principle for any medication is does it work? Does it work without side effects? If there are side effects, uh, are they manageable? And so we it's important to look at that in the short term, but over the long term as well. Does it work over the long term and do side effects evolve over the long term as well? So this is, you know, our informed consent and it's a good way to think about uh, medical decision making. What are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the alternatives? And so looking at the risk for benzodiazepines, we know commonly we see sedation, dizziness, vertigo, fatigue. A lot of this uh, after the initial uh, start of benzodiazepines tends to dissipate, however, can persist for some individuals. Discognition, cognitive problems, confusion, anterograde amnesia, memory problems, attention problems, all cognitive do uh, domains are actually affected by it. 
And of course, psychomotor impairment, and that involves uh, incoordination, ataxia, and can land on injury, falls, fractures uh, for individuals as well, particularly in the elderly. There can be paradoxical effects. Uh, the disinhibition can result in increased uh, excitability, irritability, and we see even violence uh, that been, has been associated with the use of benzodiazepines as well. Adverse mood events uh, can occur as well, emotional blunting, mania has occurred, depression, suicidality with the use of benzodiazepines, and then of course, uh, physiologic dependence, which is expressed through tolerance, which basically means that uh, I'm used to a medication after taking it, and I need a higher dose in order to get the same effect. Uh, as well, we see individuals, of course, with intoxication, rarely addiction, as I've mentioned, and then withdrawal. Discontinuation of benzodiazepines can result in relapse of the original condition, the same anxiety coming forward. Rebound means a, a level of uh, anxiety that's higher than the original baseline. And then in the withdrawal syndrome, we see acute and protracted problems uh, in withdrawal that we're gonna walk through as well. Respiratory depression seems to be the source of uh, fatalities. Uh, we don't see a lot of benzodiazepine fatalities when benzodiazepines alone are used, but in uh, 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 along with uh, other respiratory depressions, particularly the over, uh, opioids, we see the overdose and overdose deaths. Uh, as well as increased mortality not otherwise specified, you know, uh, can occur with benzodiazepines as well. So in the risks, we want to look at this uh, in relation to long term as well. And we can see the development of depression, discognition. There's mixed data on dementia. The latest data suggests that that's not the case. Uh, addiction that is uh, rare as well. But we see this sensitization centrally, just like we do with opioids, uh, a phenomenon that's called kindling, which was originally identified with alcohol, where repeated uh, a discontinuation of uh, alcohol uh, results in worse uh, withdrawal syndrome when you drink yet again. But we also see this uh, with benzodiazepines when there is an on and off uh, 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 provision of benzodiazepines, we see this kindling phenomenon or hypersensitization uh, because of that. It's also called windup. And interestingly enough, there are some individuals who are exposed to benzodiazepines that have increased anxiety over time. In a study by Heather Ashton, 1987, all of the individuals in that 50-person cohort had increased anxiety after benzodiazepines were started. Uh, that indeed improved after discontinuation of benzodiazepines and even agoraphobia. 20% of those individuals had no agoraphobia until benzodiazepines were introduced. And then uh, benzodiazepines were introduced, the agoraphobia was uh, present and that dissipated as a result of discontinuation. We see neurologic symptoms uh, like pain syndromes and seizures as a result of exposure to benzodiazepines as well. And then of course, persistent withdrawal. And this one surprised me, uh, cancer has been now associated with benzodiazepine use uh, over time. Uh, that's not been well worked out. So why use it at all? Well, anxiety itself has consequences, brain changes, quality of life, functional, 
uh, problems, sympathetic hyperarousal, a lot of uh, side effects like cardiac events, sexual dysfunction, suicidality, particularly in the context of PTSD, discognition, fin financial burden. This is just a short list of consequences of uh, anxiety. So we are obliged, I think, as medical providers to do something about this but it has to be uh, balanced with uh, treatment consequences uh, as well. So what about the benefits? Well, first line, we see this status epilepticus, procedure amnestic, alcohol withdrawal, as well as benzodiazepine withdrawal, and non-psychotic uh, crisis anxiety are all first line indications and uh, very important. Uh, these are valuable medications in that context. We see other uh, indications like certain movement disorders, muscle relaxation, and of course, anxiety disorder, insomnia, and seizures uh, as being important indications as well. The alternatives, I'm not gonna walk through all of this, but there are a number of pharmacologics that are available that could be used as well, as well as non-pharmacologic processes. And I divide those into self-directed after training, such as exercise, movement, meditation, mindfulness, relaxation processes as well, and then professionally directed. And I would highlight the cognitive behavioral therapy in particular, which has a lot of value. We see acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, acupuncture and ma massage as well. And in the context of CBT, benefit is durable at least a year after conclusion of the CBT as well. So just like insomnia has value well beyond the treatment phase for individuals as well. Mark Twain said, uh, I've had many troubles in my life, most of which didn't happen. This is reflective of what we call transient or state anxiety. And uh, that's the kind of anxiety that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, treated with uh, a, a medical agent uh, as well. Anxiety, by definition, a feeling related to an anticipated future threat Fear being defined here is related to an immediate threat. The tiger is coming after me. Stressors are the events, worry are the thoughts. Stress is the physical response there as well. And anxieties are the trade-ins anxiety. That's more hardwired in uh, for uh, individuals that are involved. And we see those group of disorders as well. But we also see anxiety in other conditions, such as trauma and stressor-related disorders, PTSD, for example, anxiety associated with obsessive-compulsive-related uh, disorders, and, and then general medical illnesses as well. The uh, PTSD and uh, OCD have been recategorized. They are no longer considered to be anxiety disorders in DSM-5, and appropriately so. So what about using them in clinical practice? So crisis level anxiety, uh, benzodiazepines are an uh, 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 option in that context, unless there's associated with uh, psychosis when second generation antipsychotics are preferred. For anxiety disorders, short-term use is, uh, is indeed indicated, but I would highlight that this really ought to be considered as a bridge and should be used in individuals who are functionally affected by their anxiety, not uh, mild anxiety for, uh, for whom uh, uh, other strategies will be effective. But if they're functionally uh, uh, affected by their, their anxiety, short-term use definitely has a, an important role in that regard. We do know that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy works as well as benzodiazepines and acceptance and commitment therapy works as well as CBT. So those options 
should be invoked at the same time that first prescription for benzodiazepines uh, provided uh, because indeed it takes a while to get an individual into a therapist uh, and for that uh, mechanism uh, for that process to actually work one or two weeks in that context. But for anxiety and PTSD and OCD, the benzodiazepines are ineffective or even worse outcomes can occur. So picture the disinhibition that benz benzodiazepines can provide. Individuals with PTSD and have the propensity towards violence, for example, disinhibition is not a good idea. So it could be counterproductive in that context. So short-term efficacy has been demonstrated for individuals. Benefit often can decline after the initial benefit and long-term efficacy has not been demonstrated in uh, research. There are some claims otherwise, and I'll never say never in medicine, uh, but for most individuals that probably is not the case. And we do see as reflected by the Heather Ashton study that I was describing that uh, uh, that uh, individuals can get better with regards to their benz uh, with regards to their anxiety when you stop benzodiazepines as well. So, say we take the leap. Uh, say we go ahead and prescribe benzodiazepines. Uh, how long? How much uh, do we uh, do we continue with the medication? Well, there is loss of efficacy, and it's important not to assume that the underlying anxiety and insomnia is worse and therefore a higher dose of benzodiazepines is indicated. It is important to consider that context of where anxiety might get better as, or get worse as a result of benzodiazepine exposure. I, I term this benzodiazepine-induced hyperanxiogenesis that can occur. And then with regards to adverse re uh, reactions, don't assume that there's a different cause uh, to this. Uh, it's important to track depression, discognition, the possibility of uh, dementia, although that's debated, and neurologic conditions as well. I think it is wise so for individuals that are on benzodiazepines as well as opioids to monitor uh, nocturnal oxygenation, say nocturnal oximetry or sleep study, especially if an individual has underlying respiratory disease to make sure that that adverse reaction doesn't show up and if indeed it does show up to respond to that. But generally speaking, we recommend that the duration of use exceeding four weeks uh, for benzodiazepines that uh, discontinuation should be recommended to patients. Uh, uh, some uh, conclude that uh, long-term use is okay. And uh, like I say, ne I'll never say never in medicine, but for the majority of individuals, an offering of uh, discontinuation is really indicated. So when individuals uh, stop benzodiazepines, there are a number of symptoms and I divide those into three categories. There are psychological symptoms, neurophysiologic symptoms, and somatic symptoms. And some of these are expected, like an increase in anxiety, increase in sleep-related problems. But some are unexpected, like depersonalization, derealization, even mania. The neurophysiologic symptoms uh, can be peculiar, bizarre, even dramatic. Electric shock-like sensations, uh, pain. Uh, one wouldn't think necessarily that they were associated with discontinuation of benzodiazepines, but we do see that. Uh, perceptual disturbances uh, such as hypersensitivity to uh, touch, smell, taste, visual, auditory as well. 
uh, movement disorders, the so-called seizure disorders, uh, the pseudo seizures, uh, with these odd movements that occur that are really involuntary for individuals. They appear to be psychological and misdiagnosed as such, but indeed we see those with benzodiazepines discontinuation and then somatic symptoms as well, GI in particular, but also uh, chest pain. There are patterns that are associated with uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal, and we see that uh, similar to other uh, withdrawal from other uh, uh, substances that are addiction prone, that there is a general a gradual decline in severity. But with benzodiazepines, you can also see an initial decline and then an increase in severity. This is uh, confusing to those of us that are sitting as clinicians in relation to that because we're thinking, wow, this got to got to be something else other than benzodiazepines. And I think it's important to consider that option, but also consider that indeed benzodiazepines can do this. And then uh, we have the prolonged severity for an indeterminate period of time, uh, but we see this peculiar spikes in severity uh, overlying the other patterns, this fluctuation that certainly can occur uh, for individuals uh, uh, benzodiazepine survivors call this waves and windows. Uh, this was originally described by uh, David Smith in uh, way back in 1982. Uh, and indeed, you can see that group A uh, uh, fluctuation that occurs. Uh, this seems to be uh, very peculiar to those of us that are doing addiction medicine who, who see the withdrawal very typically slowly declines in terms of withdrawal symptoms over time, but this fluctuation can occur in relation to benzodiazepines. So how do we distinguish this from other diagnoses? Well, we can look at this in terms of psychological symptoms that are not present before benzodiazepine initiation, such as depersonalization, derealization, or we see psychological symptoms that are combined with neurophysiologic or somatic symptoms as well. When we see somatic symptoms in relation to that, of course, we're looking for alternative diagnoses as well, but we can see that uh, in benzodiazepine withdrawal and neurophysiologic symptoms, uh, highlighting particularly the movement abnormalities, the perceptual disturbances, and centralized pain. And we can also see uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal symptoms for individuals that are still on benzodiazepines, what we call interdose symptoms, because of declining blood levels that occur, that end of dose failure, that end of dose symptom presentation, when I'm due for the next benzodiazepine dose, uh, we see that in some individuals. Uh, when individuals have this, these interdose symptoms and the tapering uh, sh shows that this actually accentuates, this is probably benzodiazepine uh, withdrawal rather than an alternative uh, diagnosis. And then of course, uh, symptom decline followed by worsening of these symptoms and these fluctuations that can occur as well. So how do we do this? Uh, well, I think it's important to initiate the conversation to plan and support before starting to taper the individuals off. Brief intervention has been found to be uh, beneficial, giving advice through a letter, a self-help book, uh, uh, consultation face-to-face -face or virtually. 
the goals uh, are to discontinue benzodiazepines at least to decrease the dose uh, to the lowest dose necessary for this individual uh, without having uh, accentuation of the uh, withdrawal symptoms uh, being too prominent and at the same time to manage the underlying medical conditions such as anxiety uh, as well. We want to be all in on addressing anxiety as well as insomnia during this process. It's important to provide informed consent to educate. I find that the Ashton Manual is very readable by patients, uh, very understandable. It's an excellent guide for those of us that, uh, that are uh, prescribers as well. And then peer coaching, which is really important uh, to assist and support individuals in this particular process. One of the major considerations is to consider a long-acting GABAergic agent or benzodiazepine for, uh, before tapering. Uh, diazepam is often considered very useful because there is indeed a two milligram per one cc solution that allows for small incremental reductions, which are really important uh, in tapering as well. But you can also consider clonazepam or phenobarbital, which also have long half-lives as well to smooth out the withdrawal uh, process uh, for these individuals. Tapering slowly, very slowly, and keeping in mind that this may take many months, 12 to 18 months or even longer. You want to avoid that as-needed dosing or updosing for individuals because of the kindling effect, and the adjustments that occur should be directed by the patients. It's their expertise, their response that tells us then when to do the next uh, reduction uh, and how much of the reduction is uh, to, uh, to be done. And that may be several months before between reductions, uh, depending on how the patient does. Symptom severity can be measured by the uh, CYLB, the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment Scale, but I find that that's not particularly useful because that's a global scale and sometimes there are prominent symptoms that patients have in withdrawal uh, that uh, are just one or two of them and uh, the global number will not reflect that and I would simply follow the patient's uh, response with regards to the symptoms that they do present with in terms of deciding about that and not using a scale for that. Adding therapies, especially CBT, adjunctive medications. There are a number of uh, medications that have been studied. Uh, carbamazepine probably has the best data, but there are other options to consider uh, as well. And these require clinical skills, uh, which involve patients on your part as a prescriber, also for the patients themselves collaborating, do not work without a net. Uh, it's important to work with the therapist, the peer coach, uh, the supportive uh, in the supportive family, as well as significant others. Motivational interviewing uh, with which we are familiar uh, as a mechanism to assist individuals to making decisions in that uh, process. And then most importantly, uh, listening to patients. So many, many patients have extensive knowledge uh, and we're, we're going to listen to uh, Terry right now, who's going to relate her uh, experience in relation to that and uh, her reflections on uh, how we as prescribers might be able to do a better job in that. And so I'm going to turn this over to Terry now, if you could uh, go ahead and tell us about uh, who you are and what your experience was. Terry? Thank you, Dr. Wright. Um, if you want to go ahead and start clicking through. So my name is Terry Schreiber. I'm the CEO and founder of the Schreiber Research Group, or TSRG. 
We are a Colorado-based nonprofit comprised of a multidisciplinary team from public policy, medicine, and economics. And we have been working to fill knowledge gaps regarding benzodiazepines and opioids for about five years, and that's how I know Dr. Wright. We look to find solutions, raise awareness, and conduct studies, and we are here today um, in part because this is the work that we do. We want to influence how benzos are prescribed and improve tapering practices, and we want to talk to as many medical professionals who are prescribing as possible so that they get the message how challenging those medications can be for certain patients. We hope to participate in creating a clinic or an online platform to offer peer support. Right now, a lot of people who are receiving peer support do so without medical involvement. They get it from peers who are out there in the internet universe um, where there's no medical supervision whatsoever. And I come from a, a population of educated professionals who have been harmed by taking uh, this class of medication without really understanding that they were intended to be taken for only two to four weeks. I'm also an example of a person who believed that it made sense to look outside of myself to solve my health problems. And so I grew up in an era where you go to the doctor, you ask for advice, they say, okay, try this medication or that medication. And initially I willingly did that. I have learned through this process that I need to take more of a primary role in my overall wellness. And I'm here today to talk about how I was harmed after taking the medication for 15 years and how I changed my thinking around the relationship with my medical providers. At different times, I was prescribed Ativan, Clonopin, and Valium. And I experienced three years of very intense protracted harm um, while I was recovering from taking the medication. And my career was temporarily curtailed, but it could have been derailed. I think if I was a different person, I didn't have the support structure that I do. And so I think it's important to convey these uh, messages. So the reason I started taking the medication is I was having trouble sleeping. I was managing a team from the West Coast of the United States that was in Europe. I would typically wake up about three in the morning because I wanted to know what was happening with my team and I, I needed some help um, trying to improve my sleep. I tried other medications. I tried an antidepressant. I tried one of the Z drugs and did not have success. So initially I was prescribed 0.5 milligrams of Ativan in 2001. I was never prescribed more than one milligram. So for many, I was prescribed a very low dose. I always took it as prescribed. But when I attempted to taper on my own on a few occasions, I was terrified by not knowing what was happening. And the symptoms, you know, Dr. Wright went into a lot of the details and I experienced a number of those and usually within a very short period of time of stopping the medication. I switched to 0.5 milligrams of clonopin, um, approximately five milligrams of Valium for several years. But I became suicidal and I never figured out that it was probably a result of having taken these medications. So it took years to consider that it was caused by the Ativan, potentially. I switched to Valium in 2011, and I had a very, very difficult experience because the doctor had made a medication dosage error, and the prescription had gone from one milligram of clonazepam to one milligram of Valium, which was actually a 90% decrease in the dosage. And it could have actually caused my death. Um, I didn't know what was happening. I was having very severe symptoms. I was actually working on a PhD at the time, 
and I was taking an exam and I could not figure out what was wrong. I reached out to my doctor, um, not the one who had prescribed it, but someone else who was on call for that doctor. And she said, you need to get in here immediately and changed uh, the medication dosage. The symptoms did dissipate once I resumed taking the medication, but I was left really fearful and terrified about what had happened. Um, once I was fully prepared to handle the unknown and the difficult experience, I did taper quickly. So it's not exactly as Dr. Wright had um, suggested. I tapered one milligram per week for 10 weeks, and then I would completely stop taking the medication. But how did I know there was a problem? Well, when I attempted to stop taking the medication and I had all those sudden and extreme um, symptoms, And they usually emerged around day four, and it was very troubling. And I had a lot of um, important jobs, or in my mind, they were important jobs where I couldn't show up at work feeling the way that I was feeling. So it was very terrifying, and I would usually go back to taking the medication so that I could perform the way that I was accustomed to and I could resume my sleep. My experience with the prescribers, you know, it's easy to look back and, you know, sort of identify where the challenges occurred. But in retrospect, um, it probably began with the very first prescriber. There was no informed consent. Uh, there was no warning about the risks or recommended duration. And then the initial prescriber left his practice without warning. And so I went from him to the next doctor without really having enough information. And I sort of went down a path. But when I was ready to taper after all those many years, my prescriber didn't know how to help me. In fact, he made a recommendation that I taper off of the equivalent of 10 milligrams of Valium in two weeks, which would have been very, very difficult. Even the 10 weeks was too difficult. Instead, I went to my allergist who understood my sensitivities to all sorts of uh, environmental things and my pharmacist who understood the medications I had been prescribed. And I found additional information out online. I wasn't in a support group. I was just doing a lot of reading. But my, as I said, my prescribing doctors didn't know how to help or they were unwilling to guide the taper. So I felt very lucky that I had my allergist and my pharmacist. And here are my suggestions around tapering. So I believe that as prescribers that you might be able to identify potential patients. Maybe it's based on the duration of how long they've been taking this class of medications. Um, I think a, a lot of what I've learned from working with Dr. Wright is that you create a partnership with the medical provider and the patient so that the, pen, uh, that the patients can benefit if they feel supported and they're not in it alone because it's going to take a lot of time and support. And if the provider can recognize that they may have fears or concerns, this is not for the faint of heart. Tapering is, is a very challenging undertaking, and I think the provider and the patient need to be prepared for that. So the patient needs to create a support structure and the provider needs to discuss that with them and how to shore up one. I had uh, my mother, my daughter, my allergist, my pharmacist, I had a, a group of people around me that were helping me. And also you need to convey that this is a journey. It's not a moment. I mean, it took me multiple years to actually feel as good as I do today. And what I want you to also consider is what will work for this person at this moment. There's a lot of uh, sort of roller coaster feelings. You know, you might have a good day, you might have a good week, but then all of a sudden you can have a very, very difficult and challenging time. So you need to be mindful of the pacing of the taper. 
Mine was probably too fast. I had a lot of symptoms for a very long time, but I knew that I wanted the medication out of my system. So each patient will need to communicate with their provider what is happening and whether the pacing is too daunting. And Steve and I, Dr. Wright and I have known patients that can go on microdosing for multiple years because the intensity of the experience. And I think the provider needs to understand that it will be a difficult experience. And if you have a group of, of providers or mental health professionals, family members all involved, then the burden obviously will be dispersed amongst that, uh, that group. So what gave me the courage to taper? Well, I understood that there was a fear of the unknown, no, unknown, but I also knew that I didn't want to continue living the way that I was. I had to look to the other side and imagine what was possible. I recognized that my doctor could be part of that journey and I felt supported. And finding the right support system was a powerful motivator. And it really stemmed from my relationship with my allergist. I realized that I, over time, I didn't have to look outside myself, that really the answers were within me. And I had to make a decision that I wanted to live my life without the use of benzodiazepines. And I continue to ask myself, what is my best self? Was I living my best life? And I knew that I wasn't and that I needed to go through this, this process. So the thing that I continually say is does the fear of change and the fear of, un, of the unknown stand in the way of living my best life? And for a time it did, and I can say that I'm on the other side and I'm able to do the work that I completely believe in and allows me to realize my potential. And I got to know Dr. Wright, so thank you. Thank you, Terry. Uh, so I wanna walk through then some recommendations, best practice recommendations. And first and foremost, uh, listening to patients is really, really critical uh, in this whole process, if, I, if, there, if nothing else, because the key to the success uh, actually lies predominantly within patients when the uh, process is uh, very difficult as it often is. I want to highlight the use of the Ashton Manual. Very useful for us uh, as prescribers as well as for patients that can access that information as well. I think it's important to limit initiation of benzodiazepines and they are not indicated in OCD or PTSD uh, for the reasons that I mentioned. Limit the duration of use uh, as much as possible. Two to four weeks is a bridge and how might we be able to do that I think it's important to order a non-benzodiazepine treatment at the same time the first benzodiazepine prescription is provided. It may take uh, you know, a week or so to get into a therapist uh, who can provide CBT, and then a week after that in order for CBT to start working when the benzodiazepines can be discontinued. For those that are already on benzodiazepines uh, long-term, do not assume that whatever symptoms are there require that benzodiazepines uh, need to have an increased dose associated with them. Do not assume that addiction is the diagnosis. This is actually rare, and to go down a treatment pathway for addiction for those with simply, uh, not simply because it's challenging, but uh, uh, only uh, uh, physiologic dependence is not very useful. And a lot of individuals have gone down that rabbit hole to no benefit and sometimes harm. Recommend tapering to all individuals that are on benzodiazepines in order to discontinue them. But this should not be forced, except in the context where respiratory depression actually occurs. 
if an individual declines to do that, monitor and manage the risk. So look at discognition, look at psychomotor, look at uh, nocturnal uh, oximetry, oxygenation status to see if there's continued risk. If tapering is accepted, plan first, share the decision-making before starting. And consider the uh, option of using a long-acting benzodiazepine switching over before tapering. Many individuals will be able to taper off of their original benzodiazepines, but as those doses go down, the short-acting agents like alprazolam uh, might result in this interdose withdrawal and a substitution with a long-acting benzodiazepine like Valium can be valuable. Taper very, very slowly. Uh, and to do this in the context of anticipating that for some individuals, it'll be 12 to 18 months. Make that first reduction less than 5%. Uh, this uh, helps establish the therapeutic reliance where patients are fearful that you're, you're gonna throw them under the bus, but a very small reduction, see how they respond. And if it's very easy, you can increase the amount of reduction uh, or even the frequency of reduction after that first reduction. Uh, but for some individuals, because uh, a reduction of 10%, 25% uh, can be horrific, uh, make that small reduction uh, and then see if indeed this particular patient can uh, tolerate a larger reduction or even a smaller reduction than that. And then adjust the amount of uh, reduction and the intervals between reduction according to the patient. It's the patient's expertise that tells you the answer, not our particular knowledge about the duration of uh, 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 benefit from a particular agent in terms of how long it uh, uh, lasts in the, in the body. Adding a, a cognitive behavioral therapy even before reduction, uh, consideration of adjunctive medications as you go along avoiding uh, kindling by way of avoiding updosing and as needed benzodiazepines. Uh, and then you'll probably need to t uh, slow the tapering down as uh, you're getting closer and closer to complete discontinuation, just like we do for steroids, uh, just like we do for buprenorphine for those of us that work with uh, those, uh, those particular medications. And if the uh, symptoms persist, support and encourage. There are individuals out there that are years with symptoms, uh, years with symptoms even after fully discontinuing these agents, and we should not disappear. Uh, we should support and encourage them as well. And did I mention listen to your patients? They often have the next best ideas. Uh, so, uh, you know, how many times do I sit in front of the, uh, stand in front of the exam door, I think I know uh, what the next step is for the patient that I'm going to see. But if I listen uh, to my patients carefully, I often find the better answer from what they tell me. Solutions are iterative, back and forth uh, with regards to what the patients uh, tell us in that regard. And, and this is critical. I mean, there are six uh, gravestones around the world with the words, I told them I was sick. Again, it's an emphasis that we need to listen to them about their individual experience and how to respond to that uh, most effectively. Thank you, uh, all of you, for what you do for your patients, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to this important issue. I'm happy to take any questions if we have some time. Uh, Dr. Webb, do we see anybody with uh, questions? Are there any questions out there? Also, feel free to type them in the chat. I have a couple of questions, so. I'll go first. Um, if we start somebody on a short-term benzo 
Is there one that you would recommend more than others? Ah, you know, it's a, a kind of, yeah, it depends. Uh, you know, I'll praise the lamb has been used uh, predominantly. It's still one of the most uh, frequently prescribed uh, benzodiazepines out there. Probably is not the best uh, first choice uh, in, in relation uh, to, uh, to it. Uh, to, to the indications that are out there because there's a greater addiction liability and because of its uh, short-term aspect. I like uh, uh, lorazepam uh, 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 to be used more frequently uh, than the other agents. Uh, and of course, I, I mentioned that in the context of using it short-term. And uh, another question I had was, you know, I think most of us have patients who use infrequent benzodiazepines, you know, a few times a month. Is that an issue? Should we be working on getting them off or is that more acceptable? That is more acceptable. Uh, it's the continuous exposure that results in the physiologic dependence uh, that primarily is there. And so we do have patients with uh, phobias, uh, flight anxiety, for example, and it's perfectly acceptable to use a benzodiazepine uh, in that context. And again, the, the, the context really ought to be, are these individuals functionally impaired as a result of their anxiety? So episodic use uh, and acceptable use of benzodiazepines, uh, even on an ongoing basis for those that are significantly affected by their underlying anxiety. Thanks. I have a, another question. The Ashton Manual, is that very expensive? The Ashton Manual is uh, easily available for free online. Uh, the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition has a copy of it, very easy to find, very easy to read. It's very easy for patients to read as well, and, and they will very easily uh, see that uh, she is really speaking to them uh, directly. It's in language that is very understandable. The primary limitation that I see with the Ashton Manual, it, 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 it is a little bit dated, but it, is, uh, it outlines schedules of reduction, and we no longer recommend fixed schedules for reduction. Some individuals will do well with that kind of thing, but, but I recommend that you simply respond to a patient's uh, expression of how that last reduction occurred rather than going through a fixed, I'm going to do this reduction every single month, but to respond. I think it's really important to have a pause in the intensity of withdrawal before making the next step. And that's true for opioids as well, by the way. Thank you. Other questions? Questions for Terry? I found uh, Terry's story um, uh, really great to hear and uh, affecting. I did too. And when I started doing this work uh, several years ago, uh, we put together a conference and uh, I thought I knew benzodiazepines at that particular time, that they were relatively easy, relatively benign, kind of a nuisance to withdraw and discontinue. Uh, but we had a panel of, uh, of, of individuals with lived experience. Terry was among that panel. 
and they spoke to the challenges that they have. And I was blown away about the consistency uh, and clarity that these individuals have about these agents and, of course, their individual experience. Uh, that experience uh, taught me a lot about uh, the need to really look carefully at these agents and not make the assumptions that we have made. The so-called received knowledge that I had in training uh, turned, out, it turned out to be off the mark in a variety of ways. And part of that was that uh, I received that knowledge from my mentors uh, who received it from their mentors with a variety of assumptions that were made. We have had research that has highlighted uh, a number of the concerns that uh, we've expressed here today, but we also have deficiency of research about what happens to individuals. So, for example, the, uh, the lived experience of individuals, which is uh, evident online, there are tens of thousands of individuals uh, that have the experience that uh, uh, that Terry has had uh, on online communities, and they've not been studied. There is actually only a single study out there uh, by Allison Fixen, who looks at the online community. And part of the challenge was is that these individuals are not dominant in our practice. We may see one or two in any one single practice, uh, but they are amount to thousands and thousands out there with this particular challenge. We need to be aware and respond to them uh, just like we do with any uh, condition that is relatively infrequent uh, within our practice. Great, thanks. Thank you, and thank uh, thank you again for all that you uh, do to your uh, do for your patients. Yeah, okay. that's a really great a, talk. We have a question um, from an attendee. Uh, it says, "What about Z drugs? They're approved for short-term use, however, are used chronically, and patients also have a difficult time discontinuing use. How would you approach such a patient?" recognizing more struggle with CBT and it's difficult to get them in to a mental health provider right now. That is the challenge. Uh, but we see that, uh, you know, as a result of Z-drug continuous use, we also see loss of uh, effect uh, over a period of time. And those two ought to be tapered. Uh, you know, I think we need to do what we can to get individuals into cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for insomnia. There are alternatives that are out there that are probably more uh, suitable. Suvaroxant, for example, uh, probably uh, a better, more durable uh, medication uh, if a medication needs to be used. And so I would taper while uh, considering the use of suvaroxant uh, and, of course, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, finding access uh, to that. Uh, it's a real challenge that we face in the, uh, the clinical environment. Uh, no easy solution, but we can see that for a number of individuals, uh, long-term use is, is not a benign process. Uh, uh, and so, uh, the increased harm on that end, regardless of availability of CBT, ought to be in our consideration as well. Thank you. Any other questions? I don't have a question. I just want to make a comment. Um, Dr. Wright and I have been working uh, for a long time to see if we can create a clinic 
a peer, with peer support availability so that when the patients are in that predicament, uh, they actually have an organized um, option that is available to them so it doesn't fall specifically to the individual prescriber, but there's a, a, a place that they can go. And so anything that any of you can do in support of our effort to create this clinic and create peer support is um, very welcome. Thank you. And for those of you that are interested, and we hope there are some of you, they, this uh, slide set along with supplemental slides are available through a PDF. Uh, which uh, we will provide to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Wright and Terry. Yeah, thank you. All right, I think if there's no further questions, we can go ahead and end the meeting. All right.